Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Happy New Year! You're listening to Movie Oubliette, episode 68, the Ocean Leaping Movie Review Podcast with me, Dan, ready for vaccines and healthy eating in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, cowering in plague-ridden Cambridge, UK. Mm. In this podcast, we discuss long-lost genre films, sci-fi, horror, and fantasy, because drifting down a tropical river with other tourists, then being besieged by a killer apex predator is how we'd like to see 2021. (laughs) (laughs) It would be an improvement, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Travelling would be nice, you know. Well, yeah, at least there'd be some travel. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my word. Hello, Dan. How are you? Good, good. You know, uh, probably gained a few pounds over Christmas, New Year's with all the chocolate and other things I've been eating. But, uh, you know... That's what New Year's resolutions are for. Exactly, yeah. And one of my resolutions is I don't weigh myself over Christmas at all. I just start going back to my normal diet and exercise regime and then weigh myself sort of towards the end of January to see how I'm doing. Ah, That's a good idea. Uh, Yeah, it's guilt-free Christmas, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we need. Right. Yeah. So any Christmas cheer from our listeners, Conrad? Yes, they got into um, nominating their favourite sci-fi fantasy or horror-tinged Christmas movie that people might not have seen. Jake Armistead recommended Black Rainbow, which is a 1989 UK film by Mike Hodges, the director of Flash Gordon, starring Rosanna Arquette as a psychic who predicts a murder. I've never seen it. Wow. And it's a Christmas movie. So, apparently set during Christmas time. So, yeah, we'll add that to our list. That's a fascinating mm, suggestion. Yes, N- yes. Never heard of it at all. On One Magic Christmas being a time loop movie, because remember, you were a bit confused about the whole dad coming back thing. Yes. <laughs> uh, Scott Scotch Howard recommended a film called 1201 a 1991 sci-fi TV movie directed by none other than Jack Shoulder, who directed one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Okay. Starring Jonathan Silverman and Helen Slater, erstwhile Supergirl. Hard to come by, but apparently it's just like Groundhog Day. It's a guy who keeps living the same day over and over again, but he's trying to prevent Helen Slater from being murdered. So okay. There we go. There seems to be quite a few movies like that. The prevention of murder. Yeah. <laughs> it's a top theme. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So hard to come by, but it is on YouTube, I noticed. Oh, so. Okay. And of course, we heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures on One Magic Christmas. Mm -hmm. Hey, Surge. Hey, Surge. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, Hoo boy. (laughs) Okay, so I can appreciate the fact that One Magic Christmas wants its protagonist to be happy at all costs, but it sort of loses me when that entails subjecting her to, and this is in all caps, violent vision of her murdered family. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> All because she was feeling glum a couple of days before Christmas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I did talk to my sister about it because she listened to the episode. She loved it. She watched the movie and she did find it odd that the mother goes through so much just depressing um, trauma. Trauma. <laughs> Just because she's not that Christmassy, you know? <laughs> yeah. I know, it's a bit harsh, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, Serge says, don't get me wrong, I don't think this makes for a bad movie necessarily. I'm just like, holy shit, did they commit to that premise or what? Mm. <laughs> so They did. <laughs> they did, yes. And he's right. Though I do love getting a fresh perspective on movies that I've loved since I was a child. And yeah, that's what this show's all about, I guess. So, exactly. Thanks for that. 
Yeah. Check out Serge's latest video, everyone, if you haven't. He explores the colonialist influences on adaptations of The Lost World. So you get racism and dinosaurs. What more could you want? It's fascinating. Mm. It's one of those classic books that I, I read when I was a kid. I haven't. <laughs> I really should, shouldn't I? I just watch the films. <laughs> I mean, that's what we all do these days anyway. <laughs> yeah. Tragic. And a first for us, we actually heard from the parents of one of our guests. Oh, wow. <laughs> which, which has never happened before. So from Rob Magwood's parents, who appeared on our uh, cast and crew special for One Magic Christmas. Mm -hmm. Hi, guys. Robbie forwarded your podcast to us, which we listened to over dinner tonight. So many memories. Wow. We need to drill down and ask him the kind of questions you did. We were the parents of four busy kids and this movie was a shot out of the blue. In fact, my parents had to take care of him on the out-of-town movie shoots. I just remember some guy in a black limo pulled up and Robbie got in while other kids were getting ready for school. Right. So what a weird experience. It's like three of your kids going to school with their packed lunches, the other one gets taken away in a limo to a movie set. Mm. Right. But, yes. Uh, but apparently, obviously, they hadn't heard any of these stories from him, so they found it fascinating. Anyway, they said, we watch the movie with whatever family is around at Christmas time, and we always get a kick out of Robbie and his antics. He's a great kid, and we're proud of his accomplishments, even though they're not in the movie industry. Mm. There yes. we go. Yes, yes. Proud parents there. Indeed. And I think they're right to be. He was a lovely guy. Really enjoyed talking to him. He was. Thanks for that, the Magwoods. Yeah. <laughs> and of any other parents of guests that we've interviewed, yeah. uh, want to get in touch? Smoothie.oubliette at gmail.com. <laughs> yeah, please do. We love hearing from you. <laughs> so, Conrad, it's a new year. Mm. Who's going to go fetch the movie today? Oh, why don't I? I'll just get some exercise here. <sighs> oh, the Oubliette's waterlogged for some reason. It's flooded again. I know, weird. Uh, but there is a movie floating on the top, fortunately. So I'll just reach and get that. Ah! Oh, watch out. My goodness, I'm closing this sucker fast. Hey, you know, it's cute little snapper. She's no um, digital SLR. We've really got to get those pipes fixed, <laughs> I think, Conrad. <laughs> no, especially if we're going to have apex predators hiding in there from now on. That's terrible. Yes, yes. <laughs> What do you have, Conrad? So our first movie for the year is In Your Neck of the Woods. It's an Australian independent horror film written, produced and directed by Greg McLean, he of Wolf Creek, and it's called Rogue. Right. I've never seen this movie. Mm. Yes, starring Rada Mitchell, Michael Vartan, Sam Worthington and John Jarrett. Mick Taylor himself from Wolf Creek. Right, yes. And it hails from 2007. So this is some sort of creature feature, Conrad? Yes, it's a killer crocodile movie in which urbane American travel writer Pete, who usually specialises in write-ups of hotels and restaurants, finds himself assigned to a crocodile-watching river cruise in Australia's Northern Territory, captained by plucky wildlife expert Kate. After surveying some sites of untouched natural beauty, including the naked backside of local lout Neil, one of the tourists spots a distress flare and the group decide to investigate. They find the remains of the sender's boat, but no sign of life, until a seven-metre crocodile rams them and leaves <laughs> them stranded on a small islet in the middle of a tidal river. As night falls and the water rises, they're forced to make plans for an escape before the rogue territorial crocodile picks them off. One by one. <laughs> Sounds like an ordinary day trip in the Aussie outback. Indeed, yeah. That's how I imagine it. So <laughs> I'm hoping you'll add some local colour. Well, we'll find out. After the break. And we're back to talk about 2007's Rogue the Aussie creature feature featuring a killer croc. Conrad, you had seen this movie. I had not. No. The only other killer croc movie I've seen is Lake Placid and most recently Crawl. How mm. about you, Conrad? Yes, I've seen Crawl 
and Lake Placid, which is a particular favourite of mine because it's a bit, um, <laughs> it's a bit wacky with it's, Betty it's, White's character. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit kooky. Yes. So yeah, there's Lake Placid is probably one of the biggest and most successful ones. Crawl, Alexandra Ajar's movie, which was 2019, mm. was a big surprise. It's a January movie, I think. Here. Yeah, which is normally the month where movies go to die. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's the worst month of the year for releases. But I really enjoyed it. It was sort of a combination of a disaster movie because it was a hurricane that caused flooding resulting in people getting trapped in their basement with alligators mm. lots of them yeah to me it was like watching die hard but instead of terrorists alligators yeah so instead of pithy alan rickman one-liners you just get eaten <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is fun but those gators poor they must have never eaten in the entire lives but they were very hungry they really were so i looked this up and Crocodile and alligator attacks don't happen as often as they're depicting in this movie. No. no. <laughs> it's only about sort of 200 crocodile attacks in the Northern Territory in Australia since records began in the 70s. Mm-hmm. You see, I imagine when you go to Australia that basically you're in constant peril of being bitten by a spider or a snake or eaten by a crocodile pretty much on an average day just commuting to work. That's not the case, I take it. Well, I mean, Northern Territory, though, that's like jungle, tropical swamp territory. So there is a lot of uh, dangerous animals. So you wouldn't just stroll into your local river up there. It's, uh, yeah, it is dangerous. But down here in metropolitan Melbourne, (laughs) although we did see a giant spider yesterday and that was kind of an ordeal trying to get that out of the house. Mm. Um, You can ask my wife about that. (laughs) But generally, uh, for most uh, city dwellers, you'll see the odd spider, but that's about it. To see a snake, you would have to go out to the country or the bush to really experience that and crocodiles are only up north so yeah it's not as dangerous as people make it out to be no well this is one thing that i wondered when i was watching it was whether this is something that bugs you i mean you're a kiwi rather than australian but the depiction of australia that we always get is this it is this rural romantic frontier with rustic people and loutish locals and dangerous animals. I can't remember ever seeing a movie that's set in modern day Melbourne at all. I don't think we ever see that in Australia. Uh, No, you do. But I feel like the comedy or even the language doesn't translate. Only Australians would really understand that sort of comedy. There's a really famous movie called The Castle. which every single Australian and every single New Zealander has watched. And it's just set in Melbourne and it's just about a family that live in a suburban house. Right. But it's hilarious and it's all very Aussie humour. But yes, I don't know. I think the allure of Aussie films seems to be either serial killing or dangerous animals. So (laughs) it's interesting that we're discussing this film because the director has covered both of those topics. He has indeed, yes. So Greg McLean, let's talk about him for a while. So he hit the big time with Wolf Creek, an outback serial killer thriller featuring Mick Taylor, this evil guy that preys on backpackers. It's a very gritty, shoestring, realistic type of movie and it ventures into torture porn, which I know is not your thing. (laughs) I can't. I can't watch it. I I haven't seen Wolf Creek 1 or 2. Mm. There's also the TV show that it got adapted into. I can't. That sort of horror for me is too realistic. It's too close to something that could happen. So I can't distance myself from that type of cinema Mm. and that's why it took me so long even to watch movies like saw or i haven't seen hostel right those type of movies are just not my cup of tea i can't anything that's too close to real gore even medical dramas that show you know Mm. operations and surgery (laughs) i just can't i can't do it i can't do it no And Wolf Creek is pretty close to the bone, so to speak. I mean, it is really gritty, really nasty. And I think that's how he made his name. So Wolf Creek was 2005. It made a big splash internationally, did really well. And so for his second movie in 2007, he doesn't want to do Wolf Creek 2. He wants to do something that's a bigger budget, more of a mainstream Mm -hmm. thriller adventure movie, so he does Rogue, budget of 25 million, and it tanks. I mean, it's 4.6 million in the box office, apparently. Right. And yet, of crocodile movies, 
I did a quick sampling on Rotten Tomatoes and it's got the second highest critical reviewings, like 94% fresh. The only film that has a higher rating that's focused on crocodiles is The Pool, which is a Thai movie that came out in 2018. Okay, I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's on Shudder. And I just recently watched it because uh, somebody was kind enough to gift me Shudder for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) You're very welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So I watched The Pool because I thought, hey, this would be an interesting double feature with the movie we're discussing in this episode. Yeah, the special effects in Pool are not great. Mm -hmm. It's not as good for a film that was made 11 years later. Obviously, probably the budget was not as high. And I spent that whole movie just screaming at the protagonist for doing (laughs) stupid things. (laughs) Right, right. Speaking of killer croc movies, I did do some research into, because, you know, I'd only seen Crawl and Lake Placid. What other ones are there? Mm. There are two other Australian killer croc movies. Right. There's one from 1987 called Dark Age, which is probably the most misleading title for a killer croc movie, <laughs> um, which also stars John Jarrett, oh. who is in this film, very small character in this film, but in Dark Age, he's the main protagonist. Really? Um, oh. Yes. So he has fought a crocodile before. Wow. The other Australian killer croc movie came out exactly the same year as Rogue, 2007. It's called Blackwater. Oh, yeah. And I've never seen it, but it looks great, actually. I would love to cover that at some stage. But, yeah, killer crocs are something that Australia seems to love. Yeah, and 2007 seems to be a good year for them because you had Blackwater, you had a straight-to-TV movie set in Thailand called Croc, and you also had a Disney movie called Primeval that was about a real man-eater in Burundi. Okay. It's sort of like, you know, you get Abyss and Deep Star Six and all these underwater movies, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're waiting for a particular genre of movie and then five come along at once. Yes. But yeah, there aren't as many killer crocodile movies as you'd think. Although Blackwater did get a sequel last year. It was one of the first movies to show in the UK when cinemas reopened in April. Oh, right. Apparently it's terrible. It's kind of The Descent plus crocodiles. Okay. So it's people... (laughs) Going into a cave. And being attacked by (laughs) ravenous crocodiles. Right. Yeah, Australia's Northern Territory again. Obviously a very, very dangerous place. Yes. It does look beautiful in this movie. And one of the things that Greg McLean was quite proud of was that they managed to film, I think it's five different national parks that they've kind of blended into one imaginary Mm -hmm. big national park of... the Northern Territories. And he said that some of these places had never been filmed before because it's sacred land Mm. and they managed to get permission. So for me, it was quite eye-opening and I thought quite beautiful. Yeah, almost too beautiful. Right. For me, living in (laughs) Australia, at my work, I'm often mixing like sizzle reels and pilot episodes and they're often, you know, trying to portray Australia as this beautiful tourist attraction. To me, the opening of this movie was just like, did they just contact the local tourist promotional (laughs) agency? Because it looked like, wow, is there an airline logo going to pop up? It looks so stunning. And that's what it looks like. There's no extra visual tampering. That's Australia for you. Well, it does look amazing. And I like the way that the score as well by Francois Tetaz, who's credited as Frank Tetaz for some reason. Mm -hmm. It's like the early days of spaghetti westerns when even any Morricone had a pseudonym that made him sound more sort of anglicised in some way. John. You know, he used to be credited as Dan Savio on A a Fistful of Dollars. Yeah, I know. Ennio Morricone, bless him. Yeah, I love the way the score right at the beginning has this sort of easygoing, laid back, almost like a nature documentary feel to it as they're doing the river cruise. I mean, even at the start with the sun coming on over the horizon and then like shots of birds and buffalo just like is David Attenborough about to start speaking like it felt so (laughs) nature documentary I actually found the cinematography at the start that sort of almost too real Mm. looking like it, it didn't have as much of a cinematic sort of filter over it at all like things actually looked the color that they were supposed to be. It almost took me out of it. Like, I felt like it wasn't cinematic enough. Stylized. Yeah, yeah. stylized. 
in that respect, I normally complain about over-stylization of filters and like mm. um, lighting, that sort of stuff. Um, but this was almost the other extreme. And it wasn't until the night scenes that things started looking I don't know, more like a movie, I guess. Well, I remember Greg McLean on the commentary talked about how he struggled with the film looking too realistic in a way because he would just point the camera at Rada Mitchell's talking on the boat and the skies were so blue and the clouds were so perfect. And he thought, nobody's going to believe this. They're going to think she's on a green screen in front of like a Windows 97 desktop or something. It's ridiculous. But that's just what they had. All shot on location, pretty much, this movie. I think, apart from the finale, even the second act of the movie where everybody's stranded on the islet. Mm -hmm. That's actually filmed outdoors, but obviously not in the Northern Territory because that wouldn't be very safe. No. So they built a man-made island. On a man-made lake, actually. Right, yeah. Uh, It's a man-made island and lake in Maidstone in Victoria, so not in Northern Territory. okay. Well, that's what I read anyway. It's pretty amazing. It does give the film a really good look, I think, during those night scenes because it's filmic. Yeah. But you can tell that they're outdoors. Yeah. For sure. They're not on a green screen. So there's a lot of production value in that, and I like that about the movie Yes, yes, 100%. I mean, the only thing that was obviously a visual effect was the crocodile itself. Mm. And it looked pretty amazing, even as a CGI animal. Yeah. And also how sparingly Greg McLean uses the crocodile. Yes. So many of the kills initially happen off screen. You see a shadow nudge the boat, you don't get a clear view of it. And the scene where the Sam Worthington character, he plays this lout that sort of buzzes their boat and moons them. And (laughs) he turns up when they're stranded and you think he's just going to be a dick about it and make fun of them. But then he realises they're in trouble And then they get rammed and he and his friend get tossed out of the boat. You don't even see what happens to his friend Colin. And he's clearly been killed. And the first character on the island that gets taken happens off screen. And it's shocking Mm. because it's silent. You just hear a splash. The guy never gets a chance to say anything. One second, he's just gone. And you get this feeling that this predator is just so stealthy and so clever that you put a foot wrong and let your guard down for a moment and your life is over, Mm. which I thought set a really terrifying mood for the second act. I was like really on the edge of my seat for all of that. I think he really sort of escalates it smoothly. Mm. It's not just a sudden like, here's a crocodile and then gruesome deaths. It's all these kind of off-screen deaths and then like a little bit of blood here and even the dad that gets grabbed when he's like sort of laying on the shore. Mm. It's such a quiet death. Like it's like unnervingly quiet. It is. The crocodile grabs him and throws him in the water and he kind of flails around a little bit and then the crocodile grabs him again and just slowly... Takes them underwater. underwater. And it's just like, yeah. oh God, that's like. It's really disturbing. Especially because he doesn't even scream. He just says, my arm. And then when he's pulled under, he just says, no, no. Yeah. It's just this sense of disbelief that it's happening to him, that he's gone from being an intelligent human being to just a lump of meat, just prey to this animal. Mm. The cold, hard reality of that really rams home. It's so disturbing. Yeah. And then when you find finally have sort of the reveal of the crocodile at the end in the sort of the lair it really has impact because it's like holy shit this animal is huge yes it's huge but it's not ridiculous it's not a monster it's not behaving in a way that i wouldn't believe a crocodile would you really get a sense of the lumbering weight and size of the thing but also the power of it Mm. so the animation work that's been done on this movie really holds up for 2007. I think the only thing that doesn't hold up well is some of the compositing. Mm. Sometimes you can see edges around things. But the animation of the crocodile, I think, is pretty faultless work, really, for 2007. I think also what aids in its sort of believability as well. I I know we normally talk about sound later on, but Mm. the sound design really adds to it. Mm. Like the sound design is so 
beefy. Yeah. Like there's just so much weight to the sound. Even when the crocodile goes into the lair and it sort of pulls itself out of the water, that sort of dragging sound, it really feels like a heavy beast. Yeah. Sort of dragging itself along the sand. It's amazing what, what how much the sound does for this film. Yeah. And it doesn't do ridiculous monster noises either. It's not growling or sounding like a tiger or anything yeah. ridiculous all the time. Most of the time it's silent. It just bites you. <laughs> yeah. So the sound designer is Craig Carter. Okay. But he did unfortunately pass away in 2017. But oh. he has a very impressive catalogue of work. Yeah. So I will seek out more of his stuff. Well, this is certainly incredible work in terms of creating half of the performance of the crocodile, setting the scene, and also making you jump. Because mm-hmm. he does that thing that you alerted me to in Amoobly Awards a while ago, where the sound designer will drop the sound to almost nothing right before something hits, just really give it impact. Yeah. But this movie isn't full of quiet, quiet bang scares. It's all about intelligent misdirection of the audience mm-hmm. based on the editing of the scene, the sound design, and even the music cues leading you to believe that a scene is over right before something happens. Like um, Alan, the father, when he gets taken, the scene that you mentioned, Hmm. that's right after the tightrope escape sequence, which Mm -hmm. has the typical build-up, this is what our plan is, and then it slowly ramps up the tension. And the whole time you're expecting, because you've seen crocodiles jumping during the river tour at the beginning, that it's going to jump up and pluck somebody off the tightrope halfway through. Yes. But it doesn't. It gets Sam Worthington, future star of Avatar, on the other side of the bank. And then when the scene has slowly calmed down and it's just going into recriminations of whose fault it is that it didn't work because too many people got on the rope at once and the music shifts into a slightly different tone, everything about it tells you the scene is over. Yes. And then wham, it gets him. I know. And Boy, did I jump. Oh, I've watched it twice and it gets me every time. It does. It's so well constructed. (laughs) It is. And it's not predictable at all. It kind of reminds me of watching Carrie for the first time. You know, everyone's dead and and she's done all her telekinesis and then she perishes as well. And then it's like almost credits and it's got the gravestone and then that final jump scare with a hand popping out. Yeah. It was like that. It's like, oh, we're in the safe zone now. This is safe. And then, wow, oh, it hits you. It's very clever. Yeah. It's taking all audience expectations of how a scene is structured in a Hollywood mainstream movie and then slaps you in the face right at the end of it. Mm-hmm. It's well earned and very well crafted in terms of how it gets its shocks. And even the scene at the end with Michael Vartan as Pete in the dragon's lair, so to speak. You have the whole nail-biting sequence of him trying to get out with an unconscious Kate, and he keeps looking over his shoulder to check Mm -hmm. where is the crocodile, where is the crocodile, which is one of the things that the central character in the pool did not do. He sat in an Olympic-sized diving pool that's been drained (laughs) with a crocodile, and he keeps sitting with his back to the fucking thing. I would be glued to where the crocodile is at all times. Just as Michael Vartan is in the finale of this movie, wide-eyed in abject horror, just terror of this thing, which, much to his credit, I think he does an amazing job in this movie. But uh, the one moment when he takes his eyes off it and he looks back and it's gone, and then all of a sudden it launches at him, again, it's perfectly timed to wrong-foot you. Mm. Every single jump Mm -hmm. is so well-earned in this movie. Yes. 100% agree. This is your typical, like, let's put a bunch of different people on a boat and stick a killer creature and see what they do. Um, Yeah. You know, it's pretty much any sort of horror movie, even slashes, you know, stick a whole bunch of different types of teens and see what they do. Yeah. In this movie, there isn't the Hollywood thing of, like, everyone's 20 and ridiculously attractive. No. Like, there's a big range of different people. That's a good point, yeah. Although I do have to criticise the fact that they are all white, which I do not believe. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Surely there would be some Asian tourists. Anyway, that aside, it doesn't kind of fall into that sort of cliche. And another sort of cliche it doesn't fall into is, for some reason, there aren't consequences 
to stupid behavior. No. Like there's one scene where I was sure there was going to be an attack was when um, the guy retrieves the bear from the water. Yeah. I thought, oh, this is dumb. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. But nothing happens. No. And I was like, oh, okay. Or, or the scene where Sam Withington's character swims across to tie the rope. Yeah. Nothing happens. No. I was like, wow. <laughs> it's not sort of falling into these cliches. No, it's not. I mean, it's a pretty good rounded bunch of characters because, as Greg McLean says in the commentary, it's really difficult to establish a group that large and differentiate them quickly without resorting to cliches. Yes. They're not really cliches. You've got a boorish character, Sam Worthington's character, Neil, but he's actually not one-dimensional. There are hints at a backstory between him and Kate, who he quite pointedly calls Katie, not Kate. Yeah. As though she's got these lofty ambitions and he's reminding her of her roots or something. Mm -hmm. But when the chips are down, he seems quite reliable and resourceful and brave. Mm. And you've got characters like the family where the mother is clearly unwell. I think mm -hmm. she has a terminal illness, but you only find that out as the story progresses. And there are little hints of it if you watch it again. So John Jarrett, who played the abominable Mick Taylor in the Wolf Creek movies in the series that's still running, mm. he plays this guy whose wife has passed and she was clearly supposed to be going on this trip with him, but he's got the two tickets. If you notice, there's that little detail at the beginning where he's got two tickets and he only needs yes, one. I did. Because he has his wife's ashes, yes. which he then spreads over the river during the cruise and the girl, sure, notices it, the girl that's with the mum who's dying and she just smiles at the guy and then holds her mother's hand more tightly because she's obviously thinking about the bereavement that she has to come. Mm. It's little moments like this that are really nicely done. Very subtle. And you might not notice them the first time, but as you go back and watch it more times, you realise these characters are actually very nicely done with light brush strokes. They're broad strokes, but deftly done, I think. Yeah, there is sort of character depth. These aren't just cliche, cheesy, one-dimensional characters. No. There is a little bit more going on. I did notice as well in the second time that... Because John, is it John Garrett or John Jarrett? I think it's Jarrett. Jarrett, okay. It's got a J on the beginning of it, so I'm going with Jarrett, but right. maybe not. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> John Jarrett's character, because you find out that his wife has passed and he's spread the ashes, he's a lot more sort of caring and considerate to the wife that has the terminal illness because, you know, he's realised that she's close to passing mm. and she's on the verge of giving up and he has that really tender moment where he... Um, persuades her like don't give up you know you've got a good kid you know you can get through this and it's like because of the fact that he's just lost his partner and stuff like that you don't it adds so much more to the characters yeah you actually care for them you do yeah and the other thing i like is that not all of them die the body count is not huge the body count i i counted it's it's like four out of 12 people, yeah. only four people die. Yeah. It's tiny. Even the lady with the terminal illness gets through it with her daughter. In any Hollywood film, any character that makes a fuss is going to die. Mm. The terminal illness woman would have died. Yeah. But they don't. No. Like, it goes against a lot of cliches. Mm. There's one thing I did notice about the main character, or one of the main characters, Kate. Because yeah. you always go on about how making a strong female character does not mean that they have to be essentially a man. Yeah. And she's not. No. She's strong. She's logical. She is a great leader, but she also has emotions. Like there's a, a moment where she's very overwhelmed by the situation and she breaks down and she cries. And it's like, that's a human. That's a real human right there. Yeah, she feels responsible. I think it's after the first death in front of all of their eyes. Mm. The main character, Pete, played by Michael Vartan, the American, the fish out of water, he's kind of in the background at the beginning of the movie. Mm. It's more sort of Kate's show at that point. And she quickly establishes herself as being very laid back, very knowledgeable, but able to stand up for herself and not put up with any shit, especially from men. Mm -hmm. But at the midpoint of the movie where the people she feels responsible for start dying, she does weaken and then Pete comes into his ascendancy. You could complain that by the end of the movie, it is a little sad that she is a damsel in distress, incapacitated in a dragon's lair waiting for a prince to turn up and rescue her. You could say that's a bit disappointing as a fate for Kate. 
I mean, that's my what if moment. Like, I probably would have enjoyed it more if he was the one that got taken by the crocodile and she saved Pete. Yeah. But in saying that, there's also the plausibility of is she able to carry Pete? Yeah. Because he carries her. He picks her up and carries her out of this, like, very tight enclosed den. Like, I'm not sure whether she could have done the same for him. No, I think he would have to be conscious and able to limp out with her or something, which I'm not sure that's plausible after you've been bitten and death rolled three times by a seven-foot crocodile. Yeah. I think it's right that Kate is completely incapacitated at the end of the movie. Yeah. I mean, the first time I watched her, I still wasn't sure whether she was still alive. Even when he was carrying her out, there's only a few moments where you hear her kind of groan and whimper. But yeah. for the most part, she's completely silent and completely motionless. Yeah. And I just thought, is she even alive? That's well, I knew yeah. she was because there's a lovely bit of acting from Michael Vartan when he first finds her body. And although he sees all of her wounds, he puts his finger where her pulse should be. Yes. And it's just a tiny lift of the eyebrow and a tiny micro expression on his face to show <gasps> she's okay. still alive. Oh, I didn't notice that. So let's talk about Pete. I really like his character. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I will disagree. Actually. Okay. I found his character the most underdeveloped and the most kind of forced. Right. I didn't feel like he was sort of genuine as a human being. Like he, he just, to me, he was very blank and very bland as a character. And his only sort of real attribute was the fact that he was American in this, you know, foreign Australian outback. You see that all the time in these kind of movies as well. Like in Razorback, you've got the American that comes to Australia. And even in like <laughs> Crocodile Dundee, you've got the mm. woman from New York or whatever that comes to Australia. Yeah. So I've seen that before. Like it's nothing new. And I felt like his character could have been developed more. Yeah, maybe developed more. But in terms of that final In the Dragon's Lair sequence, I really like because... He's not macho about this at all. No. He is an urbane, indoors person who suddenly finds himself inside a crocodile's lair with a seven-foot, cro a seven-meter, sorry, crocodile. Mm -hmm. And he looks, credit to Michael Vartan's performance, he looks terrified. Mm. And his final heroic moment of trying to distract the crocodile from Kate and trying to kill it isn't so much a macho moment he seems more angry and exhausted than anything else. Mm. That that final standoff between him and the croc just seems like a fuck it moment. Like, I just don't care anymore. Come at me. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I completely buy that in that situation. I did really enjoy that last scene. It was, I, I felt like I was holding my breath. I was, yeah. I'm so bunched. Up. I've <laughs> seen the movie before and my shoulders around my ears during that whole sequence. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. fantastic yeah. work, all of it. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's a great location. It's so claustrophobic. And the fact that he is out of options, yeah. he's just scrambling. He's desperate. Like, even how he defeats the crocodile was just like sheer luck. Yeah. Really. It's ridiculous. Like, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I did like it as well that the croc causes damage to the main characters. You know, normally in movies like this, they get a flesh wound. They get a little graze on the arm. He gets, like, two fingers bitten off. Mm. And Kate gets, like... Mauled. Yeah, mauled. Much. Her <laughs> leg is... Yeah, she's not going to walk for a... Probably never going to walk again. No. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they don't shy away from hurting the main characters. And the fact that, yeah, he wasn't the Sam Worthington character. No. It was Sam Worthington instead it would have been super cliche yeah and then talking of cliches they sidestep i'm really pleased that there is not an implied or actual romantic thing going on between no, pete and kate not at all they respect each other he stands up for her when neil's being a bit of a twat yes she doesn't need it but she still thanks him for it and calls him a top bloke when the tour ends yeah which is nice so many little <laughs> <laughs> Aussie uh, sayings in there. Like, they, they really tried to cram them in. Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of, <laughs> she'll be right, and rightos, and... <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia have you fished out of a dark, swampy lagoon for us today? <laughs> 
Well, the bit of trivia I have today is actually not in the film itself. It's in the credits. So in the credits, there's a delightful song that starts playing. Uh, Never smile at a crocodile. So uh, it goes, never smile at a crocodile. Uh, So that version is sung by the Paulette sisters in uh, 1953. And originally it was written in 1939 by Frank Churchill and lyrics by Jack Lawrence. So the original version by Frank Churchill was written for Peter Pan, the uh, Disney animated movie. Of course. And so the instrumental version is actually featured in Peter Pan that came out in 1953. And Frank also went on, had previously done music for Snow White. Um, and co-wrote music for Dumbo and Bambi. But what I didn't know when I was researching this was he died in 1942 by suicide. It was reported that he died at the piano uh, from a self-inflicted gunshot. So that's like devastating about such a sort of delightfully written song. Well, that's a shame. Oh, I feel bad about my next piece of trivia now because mine's much more fluffy. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fairly simple thing, but when you have one of the aerial shots of the islet and the uh, part of the river that they're stuck in, and if you look up in the top left-hand corner of the screen, the Wolf Creek crater is in the shot. Oh, wow. So it's kind of like, you know, they missed one potential death trap and fell into another. It's like this whole universe that Greg McLean is creating where all these terrible things happen oh, wow. within driving distance of each other. Right. But yeah, the Wolf Creek crater is in the corner of the shot. Oh, <laughs> the terrible universe of Australia. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> it's not the, the wildlife that gets you, it's the people. Mm. <laughs> All the flies. <laughs> and that's our trivia. <laughs> yes. So we've talked about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. The score, I think, deserves a bit of a highlight. So this is Francois Tetaz, as we mentioned. He's worked with Greg McLean before on Wolf Creek. In this case, he actually had a bigger budget, so he's working with a full orchestra. And I thought the score is works really well. I mean, he's got that sort of laid-back nature documentary, but when it moves into the threat, you have that wonderful shot where I think it's a helicopter does a, like a 360 around the boat. It's not a drone because this is 2007. I don't think drone photography mm. was a big thing then. Yeah. So you have this helicopter that flies past the boat as it heads off into the wilderness in response to this emergency flare. And the composer accentuates it by shifting between two really uneasy chords. And I really like that. Mm. I mean, sometimes during the attack scenes, it devolves into just string randomness yeah but it works for the scene so you don't really notice it yeah and i do like the motif for the crocodile oh that motif is amazing to me it kind of reflects like sort of the rise and fall of the water and the rise and fall of like the crocodile because it's got this kind of mm, (laughs) quality to it and it's kind of similar to Jaws, like the how simple it is and how it's just that repeated. And especially in that last scene in the lair, mm. that's all that you hear. There's nothing else. It's so subtle. It's so kind of restrained. Yeah, the cues are just perfectly placed in this movie. Yeah. The only cue I didn't like was when they board the boat at the start. Oh. It's just too quirky. Plinky plonky happy. Yeah. Really? See, that's a replacement cue. He originally went for something that was much more understated and they went back after test screenings and did a new cue that was a bit more plinky plonky, we're about to have fun. Mm, no, I didn't like it. You didn't like, didn't like it? it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they'd gone like the burnt offerings route and just went straight into doom and gloom. I right. love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. <laughs> no, I'm okay with it. I think it's possibly a bit too quirky. It reminds me of Jaws, the scene where the tourists arrive 
and John Williams does this sort of Baroque fun tune for here's everybody coming to get eaten. Right. But I think it's okay. The cue I really have problems with actually is when they see the emergency flare because oh. it's strikingly reminiscent of Jerry Goldsmith's cue at the beginning of Alien right before the alien signal arrives. Right. So I think it was probably tempt with that. I know Greg McLean is a big fan of Alien mm, and mm, group mm. of everyday people investigate emergency signal and come a cropper from Monster is a little bit on the nose. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I think the school's amazing. A lot of it's very experimental. That cue, the motif for the crocodile is achieved. The cellist, she's got a metal rod underneath the strings and she's bowing the metal rod. And that's how she got that really strange sort of guttural rising and falling note from her yeah, cello. Yeah, it almost doesn't feel like it's coming from a string instrument. No. It feels almost like some sort of prepared. Well, it is a prepared It instrument. is, exactly. Uh, yeah, literally. Uh, <laughs> I did read that they use knitting needles as well for some of the uh, the playing of the violins. Okay. So it would, it would sound more kind of imperfect, I guess, like yeah. more sort of jarring and noisy. It is. Yeah. I loved all the themes in this movie. I wouldn't say that were like hugely iconic but on second watch I did find myself really noticing them more yeah my favorite cue is the second attempt at crossing the river where there's no rope anymore and they're just crossing and they've got the crocodile decoyed or distracted with the ducks on the hooks um, mm. and they're, they're swimming across and then there's this great aerial bird's eye view and the strings are I guess like quite generic but like it really worked this kind of ostinato rhythm like dun, 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 dun. Mm. it was oh, it really ramped up that scene I really loved the music for it yeah the thing I love about that is that it sets this up as this is the action climax of the movie and when Kate gets taken there is just such a beautiful elegiac piece of music and I really thought is this the end of the movie? Yeah. So the dog, Kevin, finding the burrow and going in there to get Kate, that whole sequence came as a complete surprise to me the first time I watched the movie. Mm. And I think that's because Francois Tetaz, or Frank, if he prefers, is so clued in with the director on misdirecting you with his cues, mm. making you feel as though a sequence is over or even the whole movie is over when it really isn't. It's yeah. very, very well done. What I also really like about the music is also the lack of music when there is lack of music. Mm. I think also this movie has much more emotional weight because there's room Mm. to breathe after a, like an exciting moment. So after Kate gets taken and Pete's just kind of in the water going, oh, shit, like, what do I do now? He goes to the shore and there's, like, no music. Yeah. And it's just quiet. And it kind of reminds me of in One Magic Christmas after the kids have supposedly drowned and the mother's in the house and there's just no music. It's just, like, yeah. it adds so much emotional weight to the scene because you're not getting spoon-fed an emotion and you're just left with, like, oh, shit, it's just, like, nothingness. Yeah. And it gives the actors room to breathe as well. You can mm -hmm. focus on their performance because you're not being told how to feel about it. Yes. And that's something we haven't said. I mean, it is a really good cast, all of them. They're mm. uniformly brilliant in this movie. Talking about cast, uh, a lot of TV actors in this movie. Really? Um, so Australians watching this would probably be yelling every five seconds as a new character is introduced because a lot of actors from Neighbours. Of course. <laughs> uh, Home and Away, as well as Blue Healers, um, Wentworth, which is like a prison drama, McLeod's mm. Daughters, which for some reason all the best actresses have come from that, <laughs> Pack to the Rafters, the Secret Life of Us and All Saints, a medical drama, and Rake, it's a courtroom drama. You know, your, your usual <laughs> dramas that seem to exist in every country. But um, yeah, a lot of actors from those sort of shows. Right. So I think it would be a completely different experience for an Australian seeing like your favourite <laughs> soap opera actor being mauled yeah. or, or devoured by a crocodile. <laughs> yeah, it must be weird. I mean, my assumption is that every single actor that emerges from 
from Australia has to go through home and away or neighbours first. It's kind of an unwritten rule, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but also there's a very young Mia Wisikowska, oh, who yes. I kind of see as the Australian Elle Fanning. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> she kind of plays the similar roles, but she's done some great movies, or, or rather she's worked with some great directors, so mm. Alice in Wonderland, Stoker, and Only Lovers Left Alive, Maps to the Stars, Crimson Peak. So, I mean, those are some pretty amazing directors to work with. Yeah. Tim Burton, Guillermo del Toro did Crimson Peak. Yeah, it's not and... his best, but still, she's worked with some great directors, if not on their mm. best movies. <laughs> yes. So it's interesting cast from an Australian's point of view. Yeah, I can imagine. And then you have Michael Vartan, the sole American in the cast, playing the fish out of water, which he's very good at playing because he really was a fish out of water. He usually plays very serious, intelligent characters, such as in Alias, which is probably his most famous role. Mm -hmm. I love him in One Hour Photo, where he's one of the objects of Robin Williams' obsession. He also does some full frontal nudity, if you want to see his bits. Okay. <laughs> and he'd never been to Australia before, not an outdoorsy person. And then all of a sudden, he's filming in the Northern Territory, surrounded by crocodiles in 50-degree heat. Oh, wow. Or doing night shoots in a man-made lake up to his neck in eels. Right. <laughs> so, oh, my God. <laughs> bit of a baptism by fire. But at the end of it, he fell in love with the country, by all accounts. He says he wants to move there one day and be adopted if Australians will have him. Wow. And he has a Southern Cross tattoo somewhere on his body. Southern Cross being the most prominent constellation in the night sky in the Southern Hemisphere. I yeah. didn't know that. But that's why it's on the Australian flag. Yeah, that would be uh, considered the most bogan tattoo to get. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the most white trash tattoo. Either a Southern Cross or just the Australian flag <laughs> right well he's gone full native in that case because yeah he's got a southern cross tattoo and he goes back every chance he gets oh, wow. wasn't put off by the crocodiles obviously he wasn't put off by the, all the dangerous animals and the flies and the 50 degree heat no he just fell in love fell in love there you go good on him <laughs> coming to you live from the movie oubliette theater it's the prestigious movie awards Hey, hey, it's the Moobly Awards. It's where we fish with grappling hooks in dark, perilous Australian waters for our favourite teeth-gnashing parts of the film in a number of limb-severing categories. Best quote. Uh, my favourite quote comes from Simon, the character played by Stephen Curry. He has lots of wonderful lines in the movie, but my favourite is when Pete has suggested his whole decoy thing with the anchor and the dead ducks. Uh, Simon says, it's like a steam train with teeth and numbnuts here thinks we can hold it with that piece of dental floss. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. I love it as well because he precurses it with, great, so you want to go fishing? Well, that's nice. You know, the results are in, Peter. You're a fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sort of that sort of deep-seated Aussie sarcasm as well. It's just yeah. it's brilliant. It's wonderful. I love it. I'm not sure if we'd seen much of it on screen other than Crocodile Dundee and it's just really fun. Mm, mm, it is. Best hair or costume? Talking about Simon again, I mean the resonant douchebag of the film. <laughs> you know he, he says all these douchey things throughout and you, you kind of think oh yeah this guy's a bit of a dick. But then when they're preparing to swim across he takes off his vest and he's wearing a shirt that has a an arrow pointing towards his face saying the man and then an arrow pointing towards his groin saying the legend. It's like, come <laughs> on. <laughs> it's just like the cherry on top of the douchebag cake. Oh, ridiculous. <laughs> it's perfect for his character though. <laughs> yes. I oh, I didn't even notice that. That's terrible. <laughs> No, the only thing I was going to say is that obviously the fish out of water, the American journalist would be wearing a full suit in oh, the middle yeah. of the Northern Territory. But he does have an out on this, which is that he's lost his luggage and that he's just in the clothes he came in. Mm. So mm -hmm. the fact that he spends the whole movie in these nice loafers trying to negotiate a swamp and an underground yeah. layer is, is quite, quite amusing. Mm -hmm. But... <laughs> I do feel sorry for Michael Vartan, though, having to wear that 
in that heat. Yeah. <laughs> Can't have been fun. That's true. Well, at least he wasn't wearing heels. No, that's <laughs> very true. Yeah. Most Notchies moment. I guess the most 2000s thing in this movie is probably the use of CGI, but seeing as it's so bloody well done and so sparingly done so that it can be done well, mm. I mean, a lot of it's at night time or in low light conditions, which I think helps them a lot. Yes. But I think that's sort of the most obvious thing. If you have to go for technology, then mm -hmm. the simple things to point out would be the flip phone that Pete has. Do you remember when people used to have those phones that flipped open? Yeah, I did. <laughs> so yes, tragic. I did. Yeah. Also, <laughs> technology-wise, obviously the digital camera, the point-and-shoot one. Oh, yeah. Because nowadays, no one owns a digital camera. They just use your phone. No. Nope. <laughs> Just use your yeah, phone. That's true. Favorite scene. My favorite scene. I feel like there were three just like terrifying mm. scenes in this movie, and my favorite was the first one, the rope one, oh, yeah. where Sam Worthington's character Neil swims across, doesn't get eaten. Very surprised. He ties a rope, and then they start sort of traversing the rope to get across. But then the dad freaks out and he, he gets his daughter on it and there are three people on the rope and it's just like, oh my God, what's going on? And then the rope's slipping and then Sam Worthington gets eaten and then the tree falls down, they fall in the water. It's just like so gripping. I was just like clenching my fists the whole time. And then right when you think you're safe, wham, crocodile Alan. eats yeah. Alan. <laughs> yeah. I do have to say my ultimate favourite is the finale of the movie. I, that whole Dragon's Lair sequence just makes me want to cringe into a ball of horror <laughs> watching yeah. it. It's, it's so well done. It's so well acted by Michael Vartan. It took them five or six weeks in that cramped, oh, wet wow. set acting against something that largely wasn't there. The result is incredible. It's And because I wasn't expecting to get that scene after the river crossing scene, mm. immediately before it, I thought the movie was over, apart from maybe a final stinger. And you get that whole sequence, and it's such a nail-biter. It's brilliant mm. work. Really good. Most cliché horror moment. Well, I guess the biggest cliché, although I do have to give them chops for holding back on it for as long as possible, is the dog gets it. Poor little Kevin. Mm. He does get eaten. But unlike Pippet in Jaws, he isn't one of the first to go, even though there is that awful scene in the middle where they're awful, all yeah. debating <laughs> whether or not to use Kevin as bait yeah. to distract I the crocodile while they make their escape. I was screaming at the screen. I was just like, I, I can feel <laughs> Kate's pain. <laughs> yeah. I know, I'm just, I did actually say the first time I saw this movie, I said, if you do that movie, I'm turning this movie <laughs> off. And Greg McLean does mention this in the commentary that, you know, they know who he is. They know he's the director of Wolf Creek, that he might actually go there. Uh, <laughs> he might actually, yes. but he knows full well, you can do anything to a human being in a movie. You cannot do that to the dog. Mm. And the dog has, Kevin has a heroic death. He finds Kate, which makes her rescue possible, and he dies, alerting them to the fact that the crocodile is coming back. Mm -hmm. But he does suffer a fairly <laughs> ignoble, crunchy death. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Kevin. Yup, crunch, crunch. Yeah. Best special effect. It's got to be the crocodile, oh, isn't it? It's the only effect. <laughs> it's, it's the best part. It's the most convincing. It ages well. Yeah, I mean, that scene where he gets Alan is so... It's actually pretty ambitious as well because mm. it's a static shot at the end when he drags him under. So you see everything. There's no hiding. Yeah. Um, there's no shaky cam. It is, yeah. It's shocking in how graceful it is. In reality, it's just a guy in a wetsuit dragging the actor under oh, the really? water. Oh, really? Yeah, funny. but the, yeah, they've just replaced it with the crocodile digitally. But the animation on this is just so top notch. As you said, it's only on screen for five minutes. Most of the time, it's animated. They did make some full sized things like the thing that bursts out of the undergrowth and comes at uh, Sam Worthington. Oh, yes. That's a real thing that's actually there, oh, but you only okay. see a flash of it. So there are some physical pieces, but most of it is digital and it's so well done, hmm. even now. I think it puts 
cruel to shame almost actually in terms oh, of its digital good. effects good, it is though. pretty good but yeah it's so well animated this movie really good stuff yeah on the, uh, the, it, the croc it's one of the rare occasions in a movie where i don't say i wish they'd done a practical fix yeah because i can't fault it favorite sound effect i don't know whether you're gonna say this but the croc chomps yeah so good they are so good so kind of wet but meaty and just oh it it just sounds like how a a croc would chomp they're sort of weighty and bony and cloppy and Mm. clunky Mm. it's not like a snappy clicky wet high sound it's a it's got real weight and power behind it it makes me think oh and and they do they drop the score and the sound out and you've just got this clop 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 getting closer to michael varton in between the rocks and it's Oh, you, you can almost smell the breath on that thing. It's oh, it's it's so good. It's terrifying. Mm. Heads off to Craig Carter. Chef's kiss. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic work. Most funniest moment. Mine's a bit of a cheat, but my favourite funny scene is after Sam Worthington's shown up and mooned them and been a bit of a dick. And uh, Michael Vartan, <laughs> he's challenged by Sam Worthington's character, Neil. And, what do you want, four eyes? And uh, he says, I don't know, I'm looking at the brochure and it doesn't say anything about assholes." It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a good comeback. Uh, I really like that. <laughs> It's not the best quote in the movie that that all of that belongs to Simon, but it is a very funny moment and well delivered, I think. Yeah. By both of them, both actors. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, the funniest moments have to be the two moments with Simon, with with bragging about his camera and also the confrontation (laughs) between him and Pete. Yeah. It's just so good. There you go. And that's our Moobly's. That is. Hi, this is Manu Ntereme, Icheb from Star Trek Voyager, and Billy from One Tree Hill, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Aha! Final verdict time, everyone. Last gasp for this 2007 Aussie killer croc film, Rogue, and whether it should be released into the global waters to be eaten up by all other avid creature feature fans or should it be shish kebab with a pointy stick and left to rot in the dark recesses of the cavernous oubliette waters forgotten forever conrad yes well i'd already seen this movie and the reason that i recommended it and i wanted you to see it is because i love it i really enjoyed it it's a pleasant surprise for me I think the crocodile's great, the characters are great. I was along for the ride the whole time, really tense. Uh, The effects are fantastic. And I think it it really is an undiscovered gem of a movie. I can't believe that it's not as popular as Wolf Creek. I actually think it's a better movie than Wolf Creek. So I think people should see it. I really do think people have missed out if they haven't seen this creature feature. Yeah, so what differs from other creature features is Rogue is much more serious in tone it does have obviously uh, comedic moments but it is for the most part a very serious film and it does it really really well yeah by having that tone there's much more emotional weight and so there's much more at stake when people are potentially killed off yeah it's not like a slasher film and yeah. you, you feel like you've sort of survived almost as as a viewer. You've survived the film. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a standout movie. I do have reservations in terms of the character of Pete. Mm. I'm not sure whether that worked, but for the most part, it's, it's great. Yeah. And it did do justice for Australia. Mm. It didn't make Australians and Australia as a country too cliche. So no, I am okay. I am proud to live in this country and proud that they they made such a good sort of creature feature. Yeah, and more people should see it. I think for sure. Yes, yes. So we shall release Rogue from captivity out into the wild, so we can. <laughs> Terrify more people. Yes, yes, swim away. Away you go. It's going to be a real scorcher today. See you later. So, Conrad, are we going to be getting wet next episode? No, we'll be on dry land. We will be exploring the 90s cyber thriller genre (laughs) with the 1995 film... 
Hackers. I've not seen this movie. I have, and like everything else in the 90s, I can't remember it very well and didn't, wasn't very impressed with it. But let's revisit it and let's do it with a very, very special pair of guests. Oh, people versed in the 90s, grew up in the 90s? Quite possibly, yes. And, and perhaps very musically talented people who love the soundtrack, for oh, example. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Should be interesting. Yes. So join us. Join us indeed. And if you want to keep on top of our releases, follow us on social media, on all platforms, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram as Movie Oubliette. Yes, and you can email us at movie.com oubliette at gmail.com we do love hearing from you yes and please tell us about other killer croc movies that you've seen that you would recommend i'm keen Mm. to check out blackwater i can't believe they released two killer croc movies from australia in the same year what are the in the same year (laughs) it's typical isn't it and yet neither of them did particularly well which is a real shame And if you want to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar you can nominate films. And now, this year, you can get extended bits from uh, our episodes, extended versions of the Mooblies and so on. And for $5, brand new, off the presses, we will be releasing mini-sodes of films and media that we have uh, been watching recently. Yeah, we're going to talk about new stuff. So some extra added value for our $5 patrons for twenty. 21. Yay. The year of giving. Right. Indeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we all need a little bit more Dan and Conrad in the world. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Brand new year. Yeah. More podcasts, more movies. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. Bye for now. <laughs> Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. It's like a steam train with teeth and numbnuts here thinks he's gonna hold it back with that piece of fucking dental floss.